my conclusion was that this church was not being a light in that city of Corinth. You see, it was as though the lights were out. In this chapter, Paul confronts a problem that in a sense, if it is a problem that we stand up and speak about today, people will say, who is this? Who are you to judge me? That even in the church, this is so. That this problem, the general problem that Paul addresses here of sexual immorality that the Bible describes or talks about as all forms of sexual relationships outside the bounds or context of marriage. An institution that we have to be clear about what God says it is today. That God who made heaven and earth, who created man and woman, who alone defines marriage, says that this is a lifelong union between a man and a woman. And the church of Corinth was in a place, in a city, that was characterized by various forms of sexual deviations. You see, Corinth boasted of hundreds of walking prostitutes. In fact, they had a cult to the goddess of love as a defined love. And today, nothing has changed in a sense. We live in a city where people make money from that. You see, against this sort of backdrop, someone among the professing Christians in the church was openly having sexual relationships with his mother, most probably his stepmother. See, Paul says, as he describes the problem, the general problem that he confronts is one of sexual immorality. But a specific kind is one of incest. So we do not know if the woman was still married to the father or widowed or divorced. But this man was in a relationship with his father's wife. And we do not need the culture to define whether this was right or wrong. God had defined that this was wrong. God has said in his word that this, this kind of relationship was wrong. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, God spoke to Israel through Moses. He said, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is 
your father's nakedness. He goes on in verse 30. So keep my child never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. You see, the surrounding nations in Israel were engaging in abominable practices such as this. And as Paul describes the tense he uses there, a man has his father's wife. It indicates that it is an ongoing relationship. In a summary, this is this man's present lifestyle. This was how this man was living his life. It was his lifestyle. See, the truth is, yes, Christians do sin. But that's not an excuse. A true Christian is one who repents when he sins. A true Christian is not someone who tolerates sin in his life. A true Christian isn't one who is comfortable with sin in his life. In a sense, a true Christian is one who has declared war on sin in his life. Before this man, no, this was his lifestyle. And he was claiming to be a Christian. See, the worst thing that's happening here is, it's not just that the man is engaging in this terrible relationship. But as Paul says, this man is tolerating this, which is not even tolerated among pagans. He says this kind is not tolerated even among unbelievers. You see, although Corinth was filled with all forms of sexual deviations, they still drew a line where they would say, no, this is actually bad. For them, yes, adultery, prostitution, and all of that was okay. But incest, oh boy, that is horrible. But the Christian was tolerating this in his own life. The Christian who was supposed to be a light in Corinth. The pagans would look upon him and say, what we don't even tolerate, he is doing. See, that problem of unrepentance was in his life. But going on, as Paul said in verse 2, the church did nothing about it. See, this which was not tolerated among pagans is tolerated, endured, and even condoned among the church. 
in the community of people who say that they have been saved from darkness, who are to be the lights, the pagans, are now tolerating this sort of behavior. And they are being arrogant. As Paul says in verse 2, and you are arrogant. They are being proud and boastful. You know, they're walking around boasting about all they think they have. All the wisdom, all the riches, all the honor, all the eloquence, all the gifts that they have. Whereas they are tolerating someone in, their, in the church who is living an unrepentant life. What would I say about the church in Corinth? What would I say about the testimony of the church? The gospel in, in the community. About the glory of God. The church did nothing. Rather, they were filled with boast and arrogance. And rather than mourning as Paul asks, ought you not rather to mourn? You see, when people see what sin really is and see who God truly is, it doesn't lead to laughter. It doesn't lead to pride. Rather, they are filled with sadness and grief, literal mourning, As James says, let, let your joy, let your happiness in a sense turn into real sorrow over sin. And this was absent in the church. See, there is a lack of repentance in the man. And because the church has been blinded by its pride, it is not calling sin for what it is. It is tolerating sin in its midst. The Christian is not being a Christian, and the church is not being a church. And that is, that is the problem. On the general level, there is a problem of sexual immorality among them. On the specific one described, there is an ongoing relationship between a man and his father's wife, which he is not repentant from, which he is not turning away from. It has become a lifestyle. And the church 
is living in arrogance and pride. The church is not looking at sin and calling sin for what it is. The church is not mourning and grieving and showing sadness that a Christian is not living like a Christian. That is the problem. You see, godly grief leads to true repentance. And true repentance includes action. Real, serious action. As I just, like I was talking to the children. When you say you're sorry about something, and tomorrow you repeat it and do the same thing, and you apologize again, I'm sorry. And the next day, you repeat the same action. It shows that the person is not actually sorry. Because true repentance leads and it includes real and serious action. And that is what Paul is calling them to. The solution, the action that he calls them to is, yes, a serious one, because this is a serious problem in the church. From the end of verse 2, down to verse 11, Paul is dealing with the action that he commands them to carry out. The solution that he, he wants them to carry out in dealing with this problem. So you can think about it as in the form of a cancer. You see, cancer is a deadly disease. And when you walk up to the doctor, the doctor doesn't say, well, you know, for this cancer, we just have to, you know, be patient with it and see how it goes. The doctor does not tolerate the cancer in the patient. And the problem is that Christians today, we are tolerating sin in our lives. Because we are not seeing sin for what it really is. And the church can also be comfortable and tolerate sin. And Paul's primary concern is the church. That God's church, which is to be the light in its community. Is not being that. And yes, he uses strong words. Really strong words describe this very solution, this action that he wants the church to carry out. At the end of verse 2, he says, remove from among you, remove this man. In verse 5, he says, deliver him to Satan. 
In verse 7, he says, cleanse out. In verse 9 and 11, he says, do not associate with this man. In verse 13, he says, purge out this evil person from among you. He's not calling them to be comfortable with this man. It is a drastic action that Paul is commanding here. He's calling them to do what they had failed to do. You see, in summary, the strong action that Paul is commanding them to do here is to excommunicate this man, to remove him from the church. It's a, Paul wasn't physically there with them. But as he says in verse 3, he has already pronounced judgment on him. Again, not the ultimate judgment as we shall see, but judgment on what he is doing, on his refusal to repent. Paul is calling them to a final step of church discipline. Discipline is not a word that we like. Growing up, I experienced discipline a lot from my mom's hand and probably should have that conversation with her. But discipline is not what we like. But this is what the church should do. And in Matthew chapter 18, which, we, which uh, Joshua read to us, See, Jesus gives different steps, various steps on carrying out church discipline. You see, first, Jesus says, if you have, if your brother sins against you, what should you do? Speak to him one-on-one. You see, we live in a day and age where there is competition to, to be the first to break or share a story. But as Christians, our job, when someone offends you, when you're still saying in someone, is not to go out and make a video on it on YouTube or to share it on Facebook or, or even to tell the person's closest friend or to go about it on your WhatsApp status. It's, we are not called to, to gossip about these things. That is not the first step. No, the first step is to talk to the person. And when the person refuses to repent, Jesus says the next thing you should do is to take one or two others as witnesses. If he refuses to repent, you tell it to the church. Most probably speak first to the church leaders before the larger church is informed. 
And then if that person still refuses to repent, he just says, let him be as a tax collector or a Gentile. Remove him from among you. And because that man has refused to repent, that's why Paul is saying here, just that fourth, fourth step, that final step, what should be done is to remove him from the church. And just as a side note, in that Matthew 18, where Jesus says, whatever you cast and bind has been cast and bound in heaven. Just as a side note, it's a reminder that that context is of a church discipline. It's not about casting and binding demons. You see, such a person has refused to repent. And that's exactly why Paul is commanding that he be removed from the church. But again, he goes to describe how this is done. You see, just as Jesus says, when, when two or three are gathered in my name in that context, Paul here says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you see, this kind of church discipline, this edge communication is, is to be carried out by the whole church. See, it's not about settling personal grievances or scores with people. It is not about whipping people into submission. It is a collective responsibility of the whole church. It is done by the members of the church. And it is carried out under the authority of Jesus. It says, in the name of the Lord, when my, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord of the church. And the church submits to him. And that is why the church has to be serious about this. You see, because church discipline is, it is both serious and good. And excommunication is something serious. Because it involves being cut off from God's people. It is a serious thing. See, When a believer is delivered to Satan, that is not a pleasant thing. By nature, the Bible says we are all children of wrath. Following the course of this world, Following the rules and dictates of the devil, the spirit who is now at work, at work in the sons of disobedience, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But what happens when a believer is saved? He is transferred and rescued and delivered from that domain of darkness. 
And he's transferred into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. So that the church, the community of believers, is in a sense a picture of the kingdom of Christ. And the church is saying to this person, go back to where you came from. So when you understand the seriousness of this, then you wonder when believers, those who say they are Christians, you know, you've probably heard of the phrase, my faith is personal between me and God. That's true, okay? But just like every other thing, people always love to push it. And then they would say, I don't need to be part of the church. I don't need to be attending church regularly. I can stay away from the community of believers. But that's a dangerous place to be. And in delivering this man to Satan, the church is rejecting him. Here we, we have a, a difficult phrase to understand for the destruction of the flesh. And I must say that struggle to really understand this. Because some would say it was about the physical suffering, just like that of Job. So that when this man is under the authority and is in the domain of Satan, he experiences physical suffering. But that would say, in a sense, that he would be purified because his sinful nature would be dealt with. But... Is that really what Satan would want to do? Or that he, the ways of his flesh will be destroyed? But we can safely say that this is not a pleasant experience for him. But thank God that this is not the ultimate or the final judgment on him, in a sense. Because yes, excommunication, removing him and delivering him to Satan is serious. But the ultimate goal of it is both for his own good and for the good of the church. The ultimate goal is for his restoration. As Paul said that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, I've heard, painfully so, terrible examples of church discipline. 
where it's as though that it is one man that is doing this and his desire is to punish this person. That he might even go to the extent of inflicting physical harm on the person. It is horrible. That is not what church discipline is about. Restoration is the goal. To lead him to repentance. So that if he is a true believer, and he, he goes out in the world and he sees, he realizes that, no, this is not where I want to be. That God uses this to save him, to restore him, to lead him to repentance. And the church also has a responsibility to restore and accept the person back to fellowship when there is real evidence of repentance. So yes, this is good for the person because the ultimate goal is to restore him. The ultimate goal is to lead him to repentance. But secondly, this is also good for the church because it purifies the church. See, few of us make our bread at home. But for those who do, you would know what living or ferment or yeast does to bread. It causes the whole loaf to rise. And here Paul uses that picture. The picture of, that God gave to Moses and Israel in the Old Testament, which we read in Exodus chapter 12. That just before they were saved from slavery in Egypt. That they were to celebrate that with unliving bread. And here we have a living representing sin. And the unliving bread was bread without living, without sin. And it was, in a sense, to them a picture of their cleanliness from the gods of Egypt. They were also to sacrifice a male lamb without blemish. To make them pure, to make them clean. And here Paul is saying, don't you know that a little living leavens the whole lump? A little sin in the church affects the whole body. That is why it is serious. That is why you can't say I'm just... My, my relationship with God is, is personal, it's individual. But then I can live the way I like and still be part of the church. For the church to be the church, it has to be pure. It has to 
to cleanse itself. As Paul says, cleanse out the old living that you may be a new lump. But as I read it, it was like a wow. You see, Paul calls them to, to cleanse out the old living, to remove sin from their midst. But then he goes to say, you are really unleavened. You are really clean. Why, would it, why is the church already clean? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, this is what has happened. The church, the people of God, those who are trusting in Christ, are already clean. Because Christ has paid for their sins. But they still have the responsibility to fight sin. You are, you are this. Paul is saying you are pure, you are clean. Then become what you, re- what you actually are. This is what the fact is Christ has been sacrificed for you. The Lamb of God has been slain. Your sins has been paid for. All the malice, all the evil has been dealt with. Therefore, be what you are in Christ. See, someone says the death of Christ makes us clean and new. Yet, we must get rid of the old in order to be new. Precisely because in Christ, we are already new. It's not in order to be, but because you are. And you see, when a Christian tolerates sin, they make excuses. We say, you know, that's just how I am. Or, that's an area where I struggle. Or, you know, I thought we shouldn't be legalistic. No. Christ has paid for our sins and he has given us the power to fight sin. And we must increasingly every day die to sin by removing the old patterns of of our lives. Rather than living in sin, Seek by the help of the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in us. See, we have something to celebrate. As we gather here this morning, it is, it is not just for the sake of it. We're celebrating an event. We're celebrating the fact that our sins have been paid for. 
But we, don't, we shouldn't celebrate that in our sins. But we clean lives filled with sincerity and truth. Not being boastful. Not being arrogant. Not being filled with pride. But in humility, coming to God in repentance. In true and genuine repentance. repentance, Because we know the truth about ourselves. And we know the truth of what he has done. So this is good for the person because ultimately it restores him. It is good for the church because it purifies the church. It is good for the person also because it does not deceive the man. The Paul had written a letter to them before. As verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. We do not have a record of that letter. But in that, he had given instructions relating about this. And possibly they had misunderstood that. But here he is clarifying his point. Because the temptation for Christians could be, on the one hand, to completely dissociate itself from the world and go into hiding. On the other hand, that there be no difference between the church and the world. Here Paul is telling them not to associate with believers who are living a lifestyle of sin. Or those who say they are believers. See, he's not talking about one who is struggling with sin. but rather one who is habitually and continually living a life of sinful conduct. Think of it. Many of us who have friends who claim to be Christians, as Paul says, who bears the name of brother or sister, But we know that their lives characterized and filled with sexual immorality, with, with greed, with intense desire for, for things of the world. One who is a swindler, a robber, a thief, who is gaining money through an unrighteous way. And we are comfortable with them and we, and we call them brother and sister. We are deceiving them. See, today people define love as, you know, tolerance. As being, no matter what someone does, just, you know, be welcoming to the person. Don't rebuke. But that is not love. You see someone that you love running into the fire. 
running towards the fire. And you say, well, I love him. I'm not going to say anything. And in the same way, when we associate with people who say they are Christians in the church, who say they are brothers and sisters, but their lives, their actions are completely opposite to what God's word says, this is how a Christian should live. We are deceiving the person. And probably we ourselves are being deceived. About, I think, the end of November, um, there was the results of the census in the UK where he says the number of Christians in England and Wales had fallen to half for the first time in however long they say it is. And generally, in the West, it it would say that Nominal Christianity is on the rise. But in my home country, Nigeria, there's sort of difference, or opposite. Okay? You go to fill a form. And there you have options for religion. We have all ticked Christianity, isn't it? I mean, this is what we grew up with. And the churches, our churches are filled, okay, with people who are celebrating, singing and dancing. And then you walk into a government office on a Monday morning. And then for you to get something done, you need to pay off a bribe to someone who was just in the church yesterday, praising God. And this is the pattern. That is stealing. You see, just bearing the name brother and sister doesn't make one a Christian. If the person's life, again, it's not about struggling with sin, but if the person is comfortable and, see, and doesn't see any problem with it and say, you know, that is, all, that is just how it is. That is, everyone is doing it, so let us continue. That there is no real acknowledgement of this being wrong. And you have a friend who says he's a Christian and you know that his source of income is stealing and you embrace him, you are deceiving the person. And you know a brother who is comfortable with sexual immorality, with pornography, and you you say not to your, you allow him to tolerate it. You are deceiving him. Friends, as a community of believers, we have a responsibility to one another. 
we have a responsibility to one another. My faith is personal, yes. I have to know that I know God. But God didn't save you and I to be alone. Because yes, one app was he says spoils the whole bunch. Here Paul says, if if this person says he is a brother, don't even and he he is living in a lifestyle of perpetual sin. Don't even eat with him. So we have to be looking out for one another. Yes. We have to build real relationships. And we have to help one another when we see that a brother or sister is heading somewhere that is not right. But again, our responsibility is not to gossip about it. This is good because it restores the person. Because it purifies the church. Because we do not want to deceive people to thinking they are what they are not. There are other specifics that time wouldn't let me to go, go on. But if we have questions about that, I believe we can deal with that this evening. But totally under this, it is good because it preserves the testimony of the church. You see, we don't say to others, that doesn't matter. Because the world looks at us and says, you are not even better than us. The testimony of the church matters. And yes, we can... Talk about all that is going on in the world. First and foremost, we have to look at the church and ask ourselves, are we truly living as Christians? Finally, just what I call a closing warning. See, Paul says, what do I have to do with judging Outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you should judge? God judges those outside. Our focus should be with those who are in the church and leave the judgment for those, of God to those who are outside. But why I call this a closing warning is this. Our responsibility is to share the good news. But for someone who is not a Christian, who thinks, well, leave me to God's judgment, I just want to say that that is not a good place to be. That is not a good place to be. That God judges those outside might be a good news for us in the church, but it's not a good news for those who are outside the church. 
Because we have two options, okay? It's either that judgment of God is taken away by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Or, on the day of the Lord, as Paul says, God's judgment falls on those who are outside of Christ. Friends, that is not a good place to be. So, if you have not truly come to trust in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who alone takes away sins, you are not in a good place. You are in a terrible place. So a lot of this might be for those who are in the church. But there is a warning for those who are outside the church. And our responsibility is to take this good news to those who are outside. Our responsibility is not to judge them, but our responsibility is to tell them of one who has taken away God's judgment, one who has borne it on himself, one who is our Passover lamb, one, Jesus, as John said, is the lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. So friends, that is why the church is not a place for self-righteous, proud, arrogant people. It is a place for people who have truly come to see their wretchedness, their sin. But more important than that, they have come to see that glorious Lamb of God. For us to be a healthy church and to shine the light, we have to keep on bearing this fruit that shows the true evidence of our repentance. And I believe that at the end, God alone takes all the glory. And we can celebrate that. Amen.